Hello and welcome to The Things That Make Us, a podcast about people and the objects that have shaped them. My name is Zoe Laughlin and each week I invite a guest to pick five things that have inspired, delighted, provoked or influenced them. We then talk about these things at a time and place of their choosing, with as many of the items present as possible. Photographs of all the things selected by each of the guests can be found at thethingsthatmakeus.com. This week I was joined in my office at the Institute of Making by Robert Llewellyn. He'll be familiar to many as the actor who plays Crichton in the hit TV series Red Dwarf and the face of Scrap Heap Challenge, but he also writes and talks and gets up to things online. For example, in 2009, Robert began a YouTube series called Carpool, in which he interviewed guests in his car whilst giving them a lift to where they wanted to go. Others have since done similar, but it is Robert's do-it-yourself approach that meant that he was one of the first to produce such regular online content and exploit new ways of distributing it directly to viewers without the need for something to be commissioned by a traditional television channel. It was quite a challenge editing down this episode as Robert and I spent a good two hours talking about his things and I must warn you that passions ran high and as a result there is some swearing and general ban language over the course of the next 30 minutes. Hopefully you'll enjoy what unfolds as we jump straight in with the first item he selected. Well, the first one is it was easy. That was an easy one. That was on the list right at the beginning, which is Meccano. I bought a second hand, I think possibly pre war, very, very close to post war, set 10 Meccano. And when you look through the Meccano brochure, you could get set one, which had three bars, nine nuts on a washer. You know, it was really like, what can you make with that? <laughs> and then set 10 was just mahoosive, and it was a great big box with drawers and in separated drawers. I mean, it was, it was a dream. You know, I was 12, and that cost me five pounds from my friend Peter. And then Meccano, that kept me... I mean, I used to make things with that in later adolescence when it was profoundly socially embarrassing. It was like a secret thing that I would build, a, a, you know, an articulated digger arm when I was like 17 and hope my hip cool mates... Because I, by then I had hair down to my ass and a ponytail, the flares... <laughs> cheesecloth shirt but then secretly I'd begin I'd be making something with Meccano so I just used it so much I mean it, I've still got it it's kind of rusted and knackered and it, it's been really well used because so, I would imagine now if you had a sort of mint condition set 10 Meccano you'd be at uh, exhibitions at Olympia mm. and it would be for sale for 20 grand or something you know but this one is just basically a pile of rusted metal and bent because I made all sorts of you know um I loved suspension and uh, steering systems, so I would make like go-karty type cars, uh, you know, with a, and I had a little Mamod steam engine and I had an electric motor that was really quite powerful, which would be lethal today, because if you touch the two connectors, you got a proper painful make you jump across the room electric shock, and they were all exposed, and a transformer with a kind of lever, like, a, like in a sort of uh, coal-powered you know old power station where you had big levers to make electricity move <laughs> but when you moved it gave you an electric shock so I had to cover I made a little leather handle to cover it so it was just a glorious piece of sort of crude technology that did did oh I mean I can't even well a three-speed gearbox I remember making that because I had loads of gears 
I was fascinated by gearboxes and that had a shifting thing. So it had sliding spline so that you could shift the gears like a gearbox, you know. I mean, I kind of looked at pictures of real gearboxes, worked out. And it never, didn't move anything along, but I could have an electric motor driving it and then change gear. And then the wheels that weren't on the ground would go much faster. Just. So did you make things that were then useful to you? Were you designing and making to solve a problem? I, I don't think so, no. I think really I was working out how things did stuff. I, and I, I mean, one of the weird ones, I look back now, and I don't know what inspired that. It was a tower that would have been taller than I was at the time. So I would have been 13, 14, and I grew tall quite young. So maybe six foot tall, you know, a sort of a cross latticed tower with a wind turbine on the top. But I hadn't quite got the sophistication of making it a turnable wind, so I had to move it, move the whole tower to point it into the wind. But that drove an axle that was rent down the bottom and drove an, uh, an automatic hammer. So all it did was go ting, 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 which eventually, because it was at the top of our garden and my dad was digging up his spuds, said, can you just turn that damn thing off? So it was just going ting, 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 uh, endlessly. Object number two. Object number two is an Opinel French vegetable knife. Ooh. It's, it's very, very old and it's very worn down, but it is terrifyingly sharp and it holds its sharpness. I basically, I do a lot of cooking. I've done, you know, I've probably cut and peeled five tons of fruit for my children in their lifetimes. Uh, and, when, and that was a thing that happened, which was a very joyous period of my life when my children were both at primary school, which is near where we live. It's, a, it's over a field from where we live. And there was a, a thing that happened with both of them that their mates wanted to come back and have fruit at Louis and Holly's house, which was great. So, they, and like, you know, and their mums had come and pick them up from our house. So I'd just be there cutting up fruit like mad uh, with all these kids coming around. So it was a really nice atmosphere with about 10, 15 kids. Who, and I just went there. They're not eating crisps and Coke. They're having fruit, which is great. And water. And, you know, it was all, it all dependent on the season. But that knife, somehow I haven't lost. And I've had it since I was... I think when I've been in, I bought it in France new when I was probably 20, so 40 years, and I've still got it. It's still, and if you, and I go mad when anyone puts it in the dishwasher because it rusts because mm. it's you know not treated steel, um, and it's got much thinner because it's really really worn down. So I, the reason I, I it, it can be so sharp is that for about five years in my youth I was a shoemaker which is an unusual occupation. I was a bespoke shoemaker, so I know how to sharpen knives because that's one of the first things you have to learn is how you've got to have really sharp knives in, as a shoemaker. And that, so I've kept that knife professionally very sharp. And it's, you know, it was the one that we kept in the top drawer that the kids couldn't get out because it is horribly sharp. So, so what would be your top tips for sharpening then? Well, I use, I use car a carborundum paper carborundum. and leather mm. and um, jewellers, uh, there's a red product because you're going to know what that's called and I've forgotten. You put this red stuff on it's the like leather. It's like a rosin, but it's not. Yes, isn't it's it? kind of. It's got, it could be called Russian rosin. It's got the shoemaking had a lot of Eastern European influence. British shoemaking had a big influx of Eastern European technical skills, particularly after the war. Who the guys who taught me were all Polish and uh, Czech Jews who'd survived in the camps with numbers on their arms. You know, the guy who taught me how to make shoes had the had numbers on his forearm. And he survived. Amazing story. Lovely guy. Czech, well, he was a Czech communist Jew. So really bad thing to be in about 1939. <laughs> but he survived because he made boots. So the, the guards wanted the boots so they, and rep they repaired the boots. So they were kept alive because of that. I mean, it was just, anyway, that's a whole other story. Yeah. But, but So you sharpen it with carburundum paper on a piece of wood. And that 
just cleans it beautifully. And it's very fine-grained, so it's not rough. So it takes quite a long time. And there's just a method you do with your thumb and the way you hold it. And, it's and then you take the burr off with, that, with the leather side. And then it's just don't touch it. <laughs> you can rest it on your finger and it will cut you. I mean, it is lethally sharp. But it just goes through every form of vegetable, you know, carrots, all those things. You know, I love cooking. So it's a really, you know, it's a high-grade cooking tool. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Object number three. O object number three. Or thing number three. Well, it, it, this is a, a top-loading washing machine. Now, I, I just, because uh, we've just had to get rid of one, which I've heartbroken, and I kept it going, and I'd repaired it lots, and it was an American big, it was too big now. Our kids have grown up and left home, but when we had a lot of kids. So there's something about a top-loader. <laughs> it's special, because everyone's got your front-loader. Which is, uh, you know, it's not such a good design. That's the thing. To have a front-loading washing machine is really putting a lot of stress on the components because you've got weight going that way. Whereas a top-loader, the thing is, what people don't know is if you can fit a top-loader in your house, you only need to do one wash because <laughs> you can put about half a ton in it. So environmentally disastrous, you know, because I'm sure. I'm sure it's very energy inefficient and all those things. But it was such an absolute tank of a washing machine, and it would and it would spin so fast because it's spinning vertically, not horizontally. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, so you could tell that the spin cycle was phenomenal. So you peel clothes off the side of the drum, and they were like they were like bits really of cardboard. dry cardboard. Yeah, yeah, no, it was fantastic. I just there was something about it that I just was so thrilled when we got that. When we had enough space in our house, we made our house bigger. And I, one of the main design features of I've got to have room for a top loader. And you have people looking, proper builders look at you, women look at you like you're enough. There's no one that says, only Crichton would understand why our top loader was so, so attractive. So it just became a sort of constant joy. And I loved doing the laundry. And I went, you know, when our kids were small, you know, that was a, I did the laundry. I'm actually very proud of my wife. 28 years, I don't think she's ever touched an iron. She doesn't know what it is. She wouldn't know, she'd use it the wrong way around. So is the laundry for you everything from organising, getting the dirties all put in one space, putting the washing yeah. on, drying it, drying and then it on the line. ironing or not ironing? I iron what needs my, iron? Some things, what need, some things some, need ironing. Some so the kids' school shirts I would iron. Mm. I iron my shirts sometimes, although I've been recently criticised because I appeared in one of the videos I make. The, one of the comments was, you could at least get the missus to iron your shirt. <laughs> Hello. Guess what he, guess whether he got a response or not. But it is interesting, those assumptions and those preconceptions we have about the way practical we tasks oh, and yeah, gender. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that's what, what was interesting was, it was that, the thing you, you realise in an enormous amount when you have children about, oh, how I was brought up. So my dad, ex-RAF pilot, bank manager, proper chap, you know, uh, you know, as sexist, racist and homophobic as it's possible to be and still mix in general society, you know, of his generation, always cooked us breakfast. It wasn't even a thing. It wasn't like uh, taking over from my wife. It was just, that's what he did. He was good. He got up early in the morning. He, by the time we got up as kids going to school, the breakfast was ready and it was a, a good range of breakfast products were placed before us very orderly and you had to do it, eat in a certain way. But that was just absolutely natural. I saw my dad washing up. I saw my dad doing laundry. It's really only as an adult that I found out that some men don't do that. Like, and like, what's wrong with them? So it was never for me a woman's job. So our kids have seen, both Judy and I do laundry. Judy can do fighting and swearing. <laughs> I can do vacuuming and, and washing. You know, so they've not had that thing. So my, you know, I think, 
it's, I mean, it's very much down to those things. What's the next thing? The next one. I've forgotten. I'm going to look. Number four, we're on. Number four. Oh, number four. Okay. Okay. So this is more. Ah, this because um, I was trying not to do sort of obvious things, but uh, so it's solar solar panels. So I have 14 solar panels on the roof of my office, and I was sceptical, having read David McKay's Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air, Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Let's get the title right. Uh, and he's very, very sceptical about solar panels. And I was, and I'd read that just before I had these solar panels fitted and I was going, oh God, it's a cloudy country and there's not much sun and it's awful and it's Britain and everything. Uh, and then I sort of got, uh, I've got a great little app that tells me how much they're producing and all that stuff. Uh, so 14 solar panels, a 2.6 kilowatt peak system. So it, uh, when it's kind of middle of the day in between, let's say now, the sort of, um, late April till late October, uh, it, it, you know, on a clear day, when it's clear, it will be producing 2.6 kilowatts, which is enough to run a house effectively. So, and it produces about three and a half, between three and a half and 4,000 kilowatt hours a year. And the average house consumption, so for a three bedroom semi-detached house is about three and a half to 4,000 kilowatt hours a year. So it produces what a house consumes. But because I've got electric cars, then I plug in my cars during the day on sunny days. Uh, and because I was sort of being used as a guinea pig, I've got a meter that tells me how much electricity has gone into the system from the solar panels and a meter that shows me how much the car charging socket has used. After two years, I'd done around about 15,000 miles in a Nissan Leaf purely on solar power. And that was then you go, oh, hang on, this is a bit of a game changer. This is much bigger than all the kind of easy, and they are, I think, easy sort of dismissive criticisms of it. You know, oh, electric cars, they still, they use electricity from coal. No, 15,000 miles, not one watt of electricity came from anything except the sun. Uh, I didn't have to import anything. I didn't have to refine anything. I didn't have to transport anything. The transport from the solar panels to the car is four and a half meters of cable. So really, really short. Trans so the, and the, I bet there are losses measurable in that, but it's going to be mm. 0.0001%. You know, it's going to be a tiny amount. It goes through the unit inverter, so there are losses in that. But the actual energy efficiency of that system is mind-boggling. And that was utterly, utterly impossible 25 years ago. No one could have done it. NASA could have done it. So, I mean, I think there are, there's good reasons to be sceptical about ground-mounted solar farms on farmland in the southwest of England, which is now saturated with them and the grid can't cope with anymore, because that land should be used for something else. When there's tens of thousands of factory roof acres with not a solar panel on them, put them on there first. <laughs> Put them on schools, put them on offices, put them on hospitals, put them on buildings that we've already built before you put them on a f in a field. So I've got a, I'm a bit, a bit uh, you know, I'm, I think it's better than a coal burning power plant. It doesn't matter where you put them. But the sides of motorways, you know, when there's a motorway, a south facing motorway cut viaduct, that should be completely cut, covered in solar panels. That makes sense. Railways is the other one, which is, uh, there is, it is being investigated, like flat in the middle of a railway. It's not in anyone's way. There's, there's communications and electricity already installed there. And you just have, we, don't, we no longer flush toilets onto, I didn't know that, because I thought, well, look, people just poo on them. But no. <laughs> so you, have, you would have thousands of miles of, of solar panels down the middle of a railway that don't get in anyone's way, don't affect anything. 
and every now and then a train goes over them. But 99% of the time they're, they're open to the sun. And a solar panel works just as well flat. I mean, it does work slightly better if it's angled towards the sun, particularly this far north. But, you know, so there are lots of solutions that are interesting. So do you think what's stopping that is, that, for example, like a farming solar array is to do with an individual or... Going, I just, I'd like to do it, job yeah. done. Whereas, yeah. who would you go to on yes, the NHS exactly. to make a decision that every hospital should have this yeah. on the roof? I mean, it it's is. Sort of it, well, it is. It is government legislation. So there were, there was government legislation that encouraged the installation of solar panels, and and uh, instigated quite a high feed-in tariff. So uh, when when my, I don't get the feed-in tariff because I just thought that was wrong, because I'm a middle-class privileged bastard with a with a big south-facing roof that's my office you know I mean it's just it was a fluke because I wish I'd known I would have built the house differently because I built the bloody office and I would have built a, a cheese-shaped roof rather than a than a pitch roof because then I could have got more panels on mm. oh I mean I can't tell you how many times I've because it wouldn't have it would have added maybe a couple of grand to the total cost of the building which was just colossal anyway and ruined me <laughs> for life and it would have meant I could have had you know 40 solar panels on that roof uh, and uh, annoyed the neighbours even more. No, they all love it. But uh, so that it's 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 that kind of legislation. So in uh, I can never remember the name of the canton, the the county in uh, Germany, South Germany, which instigated inst- uh, legislation that said you cannot build a building with a pitch roof. So it doesn't matter what it is. So all roofs have to be. I don't know what, what that description of a, like a I lump of cheese yeah, roof a wedge for opening a door oh, yeah so and that's a south facing mm. a south facing roof and they and they and they don't you don't put tiles on it you, you roof it with solar panels and that and that has had enormous uptake so it's not just like individual homes there's a massive public housing um, uh, estate basically in in uh, this area of germany which is has like 250 apartments and i went to visit it and it's so annoying because the doors are really nice because <laughs> that was going to be one of my things. German doors, very tall, tall, tall but heavy. Mm. And when you when you put open the lever, it goes, you know, it's like it's an airlock. And those building, that building, two hundred and fifty homes, and these are like three bedroom parts. They're not like one bedroom. They're big family units, two hundred and fifty of them, and it produces more electricity than it consumes because the roof is this massive curved sideways facing I think there's something like 20 it's like 22,000 solid that's colossal and it's got ground source heating it's got air source heating in the houses that is powered from the solar panels and it's got storage and that's my next thing but we don't need to go there yet but you know that so it is completely possible to do and the weather they have there is the equivalent of sort of Cornwall so it's slightly better than central England because they're a bit further south but it's not like Morocco but, uh, yes, all I wanted to say about that was uh, that that experience of driving a car that far. You know, there, there was one really good, really lovely journey I did. Where, this is when I was sort of an early Nissan Leaf driver. That I, I charged the car at home uh, on purely on solar because I, I can set the timer, so it, the, the timer in the car switches on, and I don't let it switch on till about nine thirty-five in the morning when I when I could see that I was getting enough electricity from the the solar panels and it will would have turned off at sort of 4.15 or something so it's only in the middle section when there is above the 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 car pulls I've got to do this in amps 16 amps and the solar panels produce up to about 26 so I don't turn it on until it's pulling 16 amps until it's producing 16 amps and that is in in, and proper students that can do maths and understand electricity will know how many Kilowatts, that is, because I don't, I can't remember now. Uh, 
seven kilowatts. So is it a, th- a, four, a four, three kil- three kilowatts? Anyway, it's some kilowatts. When there's enough kilowatts, <laughs> no, the carpool's two point four kilowatts. That's what it is. It's two so sixteen amps, about two point four kilowatts. I've had to learn this, and I'm really bad at numbers. I've got uh, dyscalculia, which I didn't even know existed until I was forty, when I was diagnosed, and it was a huge relief. <laughs> Why have I dialed phone numbers wrong my entire life? Uh, but yes, I drove to a water mill in Dorset, which is about eighty miles away, which is about the range of the uh, the first generation of Nissan Leaf in the summer. Uh, but I did it, and I got there, and I had never been before. And the watermill has a because it has a he has a, the same outlet for electric cars that I do, completely powered from the watermill. So he has a that was a twenty five kilowatt. No, 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 no. I'm going to get the right two hundred fifty kilowatt water turbine, German made water turbine in an Anglo Saxon leet in on a river in Dorset and so it was big he had a three and a half meter drop and that was the, this is when I could do the maths that I really need this really helped because then I learned that one cubic meter of water dropping one meter produces one kilowatt well that's neat I can remember isn't it because that, yeah. that's so yeah. I, I, when he told me that I went, thank you thank you and thank you the metric system for working out things rather than foot pounds of torque you know, God for sake, what does that mean? You know, this is actually, it's a cubic metre. That's like, boom, boom. That's bloody yeah. heavy lump yeah. of water. And it goes, boom, and it drops one metre and it drives that turbine round and that produces a kilowatt. So, and that thing runs 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. He has to turn it off for an hour a year to, to do maintenance. So you drove there? Drove there, charged, charged, from, charged from that, drove back. So I did 100%. So I did a, a 2.8 to 16, not 61, which would be easy for me to <laughs> Six, uh, 160 miles without using any form of electricity other than where it was made, you know, which is the same, which I think is, and I think my, my argument is, you know, in the grand picture is locally produced, locally owned electricity to produce not all the electricity that we use in this country, but a bloody huge amount would be a transforming technology, both economically, macroeconomically, globally, and obviously environmentally. It strikes me you're somebody who has quite a bit of get up and go if it's something you want to do. As you said, you don't really want a job, but actually you yeah. like a project. Yes, I love yeah. projects. And, and uh, you know, so in that sense, that's what I think probably why I stumbled into show business, because that's very project based. But I always say to young people, uh, work behind the cameras. <laughs> that's the place to work, because that's nearer to a job. You've got a much better continuity if you're in front of the cameras. It's the most stupidly precarious occupation you can possibly get. And do you like to instigate your own projects, or is it a mixture between opportunity and It, it, it is, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, what's been really fulfilling uh, in the sort of last 10, 15 years of my life is the things I've really wanted to do and plugged away at for donkey's years with no response. So are you an optimist? History does actually show us uh, that things generally very, very slowly, incrementally improve, and there's massive individual cases where that doesn't work. I think Syria would be a good example at the moment. Things have not got better in Syria in the last hundred years. They've got a hugely worse. Uh, but generally speaking, they do. And I mean, I'm a very big fan of Steven Pinker. He wrote this amazing book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which, you know, all the way through, I'm going, no, that isn't true. Then you look up the references that make go, oh, I see. Oh, God. Cause he, half, you know, when, you, when I get a book that's half of it is the research notes, <laughs> you go, oh, that's how proper clever people who've got 
who are academics work out stuff. They don't just say, everything's got better. That's what I say. <laughs> they go, well, I'll see if everything has got better. But, you know, that is, you know, and that, that sort of mantra, you know, today is slightly better than yesterday and tomorrow will be slightly better than today for most people, which is, you know, it is absolutely the case. And, it, you know, things like the European Union, which is on the agenda at the moment, uh, you know, since the end of World War Two, there hasn't been a war in the bit of Europe that we're talking about. So, yeah, yeah there was the, the, the um, Bosnian conflict, which was truly horrendous and stuff in Ukraine. But that middle lump of Europe, and then it's only when you understand that that has never not been at war in, for recorded history, since that people wrote down there's been a war in that area, you know, always. And after World War Two, when a load of old blokes with monocles and funny moustaches got together in, near Brussels and went, guys, let's stop killing each other and talk, I think is incredibly bloody important. And the boisterous, shouty, nationalist, pumped-up twats that go on about my nation, my nation, this is my land, all that bollocks. I've come back, they've bubbled back up, and they are the, they are the, the human turds that have floated to the top of the cesspit, and we should piss them back down to the bottom. Nigel Farage is a tosser. He's an ignorant tosser. He tried to stand in my hometown constituency and my mum, bless her, made her own T-shirt with felt-tip pen, <laughs> going, no, Nigel, no. <laughs> she good. chased him round, holding her T-shirt out, like... I think my mum would have done the same. Bomb, yeah. Nigel, like, no, Nigel, no. No, Very Nigel, polite. no. Very polite. <laughs> Naughty Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> it was very sweet. Good on her. Anyway, we've gone right off topic there, but, yeah. Number five. Well, last. number five is related to number four, unfortunately, because this is so exciting. So I've gone really from stuff that was that I loved when I was twelve to stuff that I really have fallen in love with this year. So uh, earlier this year, I was in Australia for Christmas with the family, and I went to see a company called uh, Redflow, who have been developing flow batteries in Brisbane, the centre of technological development in the southern hemisphere. I mean, it was amazing. I couldn't believe it. In a big industrial state in uh, south of Brisbane, stinking hot day. It's an amazing place where these two scientist brothers have developed flow batteries. Well, a flow battery is, uh, they're not new. They've been around for a while and they've generally been built on like massive industrial scale. So you have a, like a, a 70,000 litre tank of electrolyte fluid on one side and you have a membrane in the middle, which is where the electricity can either be put into that uh, liquid or extracted from it and when you pump the liquid through the membrane and into the other tank that discharges it's a, a charged electrolyte liquid so that's where you get the electricity out and when you put electricity into it you pump the fluid the other way and that charges the fluid so it's basically a chemical battery but on a massive scale and there were huge problems with them because of you know the plumbing the cost of installation the size of it and all those things uh, you know and when I say plumbing um, liquids uh, in, in complicated structures like a nuclear power plant, for instance, uh, ten, the more joins and pipes you have, the more leaks you can get. And if you really don't want stuff to leak, that's a problem. So what uh, this particular company did was make it smaller units. So they are the size of um, a tea chest. It's slightly smaller. They're, they're not massive, great big industrial units. And that's a 10 kilowatt hour storage capability, which they've now packaged into a domestic unit. So it's a, it's a white box that you can put inside or outside your house, it doesn't need to be in, in the house, it can be outside, and it's wired into your main system, and it charges when electricity is available. So obviously with solar panels, that's a huge advantage, 
because you would, you know, if you're working out at the daytime, you charge your batteries during the day, and then you come home at night and you run your house off your batteries. Well, 10 kilowatt hours is enough to run a big family house with tellies and computers and washing machines and tumble dryers for a, for a night. You know, it'll do that. It's, it's, it's another game changer in the sense if you can drive a car 15,000 miles without fueling it effectively, without buying fuel for it, and if you can run your house for, you know, I think in over a year in this country, I think you're looking at probably only 50% of the electricity that you use would come from that system, maybe 60%. But that's 60%, which is a massive change, absolutely game-changing, huge change. And you're not paying for that, that's free electricity. So half your electricity bill disappears overnight. With the rise of the smartphone, I feel like people have more of an appreciation of they're holding a thing that's consuming energy because more and more people can't get to the end of the day yeah. and need to plug in constant topping up and feeding in. Yeah. And people are now carrying mobile battery chargers yeah, I've got one. to, to yeah. plug their phone into. And I just thought you could have off Waterloo Bridge, for example, little turbines that went down into the river and took the flow of the river. Yeah. And simply on the top of the bridge, you have a little charging point. Yeah. So you can do your photos, you can stand yeah, on the yeah. bridge, you can charge your phone and it's just directly from the flow yeah. of the river underneath. But just little moments yeah. around us. To, to remind us where, where we because we've all got used to it. Everyone's got used to it. You know, the, the, the normalcy of driving to a garage and buying petrol and putting it in the car and, and you know, it's a pain in the arse and you've got to pay for it and it's all tax and you can get angry about it and then you buy a bottle of water that costs more per litre than the petrol you've just bought. But that is so normal and completely embedded and hidden from us. So the, the processes that make that possible are basically, unless you live very near a refinery, are invisible. And we're not aware of the impact that has or the costs or the global costs or the the compromises our government has to make to maintain that uh, and that's got it's got nothing it's absolutely not part of political because every political party in the last hundred years has made either massive compromises or massive ugly foreign interventions to maintain that supply and i'm very pro oil this is the thing i'm not anti-oil because oil is really useful and i really want us to extract oil and refine it and make plastics and pharmaceuticals mm. and fertilizers and Anything but fuel, anything but burning the bloody stuff, because it's such dated Victorian technology. We need, I want to see a lovely, shiny diesel engine in a museum. Robert, I've gone on too so, long. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, it's a great example of how things mean so much to us and yeah. are very emotive and yes. sort of stand for lots of things that we either believe in or care about deeply yeah. and that are part of us and what makes us tick. Really. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You end on the Joey song for us, the men. No. <laughs> the Joey song. God, I think the last time I, I love that. So much. The last time I performed that would probably be at the Bloomsbury Theatre. Really, just, just over the road. The yeah, yeah. Men are strong. Men are tough. Men are silly. Men are rough. Men like men have mates. Men drink beer. Men are brave and show no fear. Uh, What's the one men, that rhymes with un underpants? Yeah, underpants. men like science. Men like sums. Men, uh, men, men have willies. Men have bums. Uh, men aren't loving, men don't dance, men don't change their underpants. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> we tried for hours to come up with something that rhymed with pants, and it didn't, we could, they were all wrong. So we decided pants, it's got a bigger laugh anyway. Men ignore what women see and call our story his story. <laughs> Thank you.
listening to the things that make us. To see pictures of the things selected by the guest in this and all episodes, please visit thethingsthatmakeus.com. You can get in touch with the show via Twitter at thingsmakeus. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe so not to miss the next instalment.